Alright, so welcome to part 3 of a defense of Calvinism. In part 1, we went over an intro to Calvinism and Arminianism. We went over the modern-day, typical Christian view, and we went over free will. And in the second part, we went over the scripture in support and against Calvinism. And now, we are going to go over the common argument, which says there's no in-between. We are going to go over whether Calvinism diminishes evangelism. We're going to go over claims that say Calvinism is immoral. And we are going to answer the question, why does this matter? Alright, so we're going to start off with the common argument. And so the common argument usually says, well, there's plenty of scripture that supports Calvinism, and there's plenty of scripture that supports Arminianism, and so we'll never really know the dynamic between free will and God's sovereign choice, and so it has to be somewhere in the middle. We'll never really know these are mysteries of God, and I guess we'll know when we get to heaven, but for now, we should stay somewhere in the middle because this this really doesn't matter. And we're going to answer why it matters in the last part of this, but before then, let's answer this claim that it's got to be somewhere in the middle. So the approach of this person is usually to maximize God's grace while minimizing man's role. And so they'll say, okay, I'm somewhere in the middle between Calvinism and Arminianism, and so what I say is that uh, Christ lived a perfect life, he, he died for everyone, God calls on everyone, and man wouldn't come to God on his own, and so God gives man enough grace where Man has a choice whether or not he wants to come to God. And so we're going to go to two illustrations of why this is just logically wrong. We have scripture to say that this is wrong. We know that if it was up to man, no one seeks for God and all have turned aside. So that alone refutes this idea. But let's look at two illustrations. So the first illustration is... So the idea that God calls on everyone, he reveals himself to everyone, and he gives everyone the same amount of grace, and so everyone is equally responsible before God, and they can either turn to God or turn away from God. Let's narrow that down. So God does the same for everyone, because otherwise the Arminian would say it would be unjust if God gave somebody more grace or revealed himself more to one man over the other. So God does it equally. And so let's narrow that down now to just two people who God does that to. Let's say there's two people in the world and God does. we know God does the same to everyone according to the Arminian worldview. And so he must do the same thing for two individuals. So let's take those two individuals. One individual turns to God and the other person turns away from God. God's done the same thing for both of these two men. So why does one man turn to God and the other turn away from God? Well, that man must, the man that turned to God must be more righteous. He must be more intelligent. He must be more humble. Whatever it is, if God has done the same thing for both men, then one man must be greater than the other man. 
because there's nothing that separates them in terms of what God has done for them. It comes down to it comes down to them and it comes down to their own righteousness. And so it it pits one man's righteousness over the other because one man turns to God, one man turns away from God. I think that the illustration I'm making has has made this sort of clear. Let's look at another analogy. So one of my friends gave me this analogy and I think or he gave me something along the lines of this analogy and I think it is actually what sort of turned me towards the Calvinist worldview and then I started reach reading scripture through a Calvinist worldview and I realized it's it's fully biblical and so this is the boat analogy so the Arminian says that God is on a boat and he's driving in the ocean, driving the boat in the ocean, and there is a man drowning, and he's screaming and flailing in the water, and God says, hey, reach out your hand, let me pull you in and save you. And the man decides whether or not he wants to reach out his hand and be saved or not, and he will not be saved or I guess he'll die. The Calvinist absolutely disagrees with this. The, the greater illustration is that man is dead at the bottom of the sea, and God not only saves that man, but he makes him alive and, and transforms that man. That's the greater illustration because it, it doesn't come down to us. If it came down to us, it would come down to our intelligence, our righteousness, or our humility. Otherwise, there'd be nothing that separates two men because God does the same thing for both of them. And so really the issue isn't that it's up to us to des to decide because if that, were, if that were the case, we'd always turn away from God. The issue is that we're dead and that we're by nature children of wrath and God has to make us alive. All right, so now we're gonna look at whether Calvinism diminishes evangelism. And so we're going to be in Acts 16, 6 through 14. And I'm already going to say I will butcher these names of the different places. And so don't get upset at that. And so Acts 16, 6 through 14. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging them and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simothris, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women 
who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatria, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So does Calvinism diminish evangelism? We not only see that God calls Paul to go preach to the Macedonians, but we also see that God opens Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So does Calvinism diminish evangelism? No, not at all. God calls men to go preach and the, the Holy Spirit allows them to go certain places or not go certain places or calls them to go preach in certain places. And then God uses those men as instruments for his own purpose. And he opens people's hearts to listen to what is said by those that preach. So we maintain that salvation is clearly fully of God and it's fully it's fully displayed in scripture and yet men are still required to evangelize because God uses them as his instruments so God calls men to preach and then he opens he opens people's hearts to listen to what is preached election is fully of God salvation is fully of God and yet God uses men as his instruments Okay, so now we're going to go on to claims that Calvinism is immoral. And to look at Romans 9, 14 to 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand? For glory. Wow. If this doesn't describe election and even answer the greatest objection to Calvinism today that, that it makes God immoral, I don't know what is because clearly what it's saying is that God has the right to do with men what he wants to do, not only just because he's God, but because he has a plan. And, and really, the truth is, men don't deserve to be saved. That's The issue is not that 
men deserve to be saved and but but God gives them the the option to be saved or not the issue is that no man deserves to be saved but God is still merciful in that he saves men God is still merciful if he even saved a single man it would be a incredible act of mercy and grace because no man deserves to be saved all men are deserving of wrath and we can see that and so why the the, the question might be well why does god why does god predestine people and then why does why why are the rest just destined for hell look what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory so why one he he does it to show his wrath and to make known his power and also he does it in order to make known the riches of his glory and we can clearly see that he prepares all of this and he prepares men for destruction and he pre and he prepares men for glory so we can clearly see that he prepares men for destruction and he prepares men for glory that's clear and so really a lot of people are going to say, Gil, why does this matter? You know, whether or not you're a Calvinist or, in our, or an Arminianist, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, does God, does God, does God leave it up to, to men to choose? Or uh, is, is, is it all election? It, you know, who, who cares? Well, it really does matter. It does matter because it says very, very big things on the gospel and God. So Arminianism teaches a gospel of righteousness. It 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 really narrows down to if if God if God shows the same amount of grace to every single person, He does the same thing for every single person. Then one man chooses God because he is more righteous than the other man. Because otherwise, everyone would choose God or no one would choose God. Really. It comes down to, I guess there has to be a difference between the two men. If God does the same thing for all men and some come to him and some deny him, well, what's the difference between those men? It has to come down to righteousness. Calvinism teaches that no one is righteous. No one would come to God. But God saves men because of his glory, because of his mercy, and to make his power known. Not only does Calvinism teach a a gospel that says that God saves men, and Arminianism teaches a gospel that says men save themselves through God. And those are really, really big distinctions, and that matters itself. But also, because Arminianism is so prevalent in the church in the U.S., America has a weak God. So you'll see that America has a weak view of God. They see a powerless God. And they see sort of this hippie Jesus who only seeks 
for peace and he only is gentle but they don't they don't they don't display the dynamic between Jesus's mercy and his wrath they don't they don't see Jesus as having any wrath at all uh, which makes no sense because Jesus talks often of judgment they don't they don't dis, they display Jesus as entirely the peaceful gentle one but they don't display him as being bold at all which is shocking because if you read the gospels and you read the things that Jesus says and you read in revelation uh, you read about you read about the lamb that was slain you read about Christ Jesus is bold and Jesus is more bold than almost any of the preachers you'll hear today he is very very bold and he scares people away. He had hundreds of people following him at a certain point, yet he was so bold that he was left with 12. And so the issue is that America has a weak view of God. They see a powerless God. They see a hippie Jesus, and they don't see a bold gospel that is extremely countercultural. No, you're not good. No, you can't save yourself. No, you are weak. No, you do need Jesus. Because without him, you are dead. You are dead spiritually now, and you will be physically and eternally later without Christ. And then it also, the, the reason this matters is it also addresses the very core of the gospel message. Man cannot save himself, and that is why Christ had to come down. Man cannot save himself, and that is why God had to change man's heart. Man cannot save himself, and that is why God is so merciful. It is so important to have the doctrine of election hammered down because attributing salvation absolutely and wholly to God is very important. We cannot have a gospel that says man saves himself. That is, that is not the gospel that Christ taught. You are nothing without Christ. You fully need to depend on Christ because outside of Christ, you are lost, you are dead, and you are by nature a, ch a child of wrath. You need Christ. And so the big application that I want from all of this is we can see that we can see that in Christ you are given a new heart in Christ you are given a new nature you are given you are made alive and so my call is if you're an unbeliever I would say you need Christ and and you and and, and that's obvious um, and and you're not going to deny and say well I'm already a believer if, if you know that you're an atheist I I am I'm honestly happier with that than I am with a nominal Christian because at least it's obvious that all I have to say is you need Christ. Now with the with the with those out there who who will claim that they're Christian, I just I just want to ask for you to examine your life. Look and see have you been made into a new creature? Have you been given a new heart? Does your heart look more and more like God's heart? Over time, you know, it's not going to be it's not going to be instant. You're not going to be perfect instantly. It's not like an absolutely at the very moment of your salvation you will turn from somebody who you know loved sin 
and hated God to hating sin perfectly and loving God perfectly. But you will see that over time, your heart will look more and more like God's heart. You, Your heart will hate sin more and more and more over your walk, and your heart will love God more and more over time. But you will never hate sin enough, and you will never love God enough until the day that sin is taken away from you and your heart is made perfect. And so I'd say look at your life and, and look at whether or not you have been made into a new creature. Look at your look at your life and see if you've been made alive. And I would say the the biggest indicator is not do you go to church? It's not do you pray? Like those 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 could be indicators, those could be fruit, but but really my 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 biggest thing would be what does your heart look like? What do you love? Do you love God or do you love sin? Do you love do you love humor that God would hate? Do you love joking about the things that God hates? Do you love do you love I understand in music there is sinful things and there might be music that I enjoy and I, I hate the sinful aspects in the music or I understand there are people that are that hate the sinful aspects in the music but love sort of the sound or that enjoy a movie and in the in that movie there's going to be sinful elements and they hate that but do you find that when you're listening to music do you do you love the sinful elements in the music do you love the sinful things in the movies do you love watching you know sort of I guess adult movies and you love and you find joy and you are sort of constantly entertained by sin because if so and you don't and, and you're not in anguish over that I would say that, that you need to question whether or not you've been made alive in Christ uh, and, and then let's look at you know parties are you do you, do you enjoy sort of constantly feeding your flesh do you enjoy drinking all the time and do you enjoy the you know sort of lust and excess um, without a need to turn from that because of course I'm sinful I I, I find myself often tainted by my flesh and I think that many people will feel guilt. They'll feel some sense of remorse. But the thing that separates the unbeliever from the believer is not remorse. Judas felt remorse. The thing that separates the believer from the unbeliever is that the believer is pricked and pricked and pricked. Their conscience is pricked and pricked and pricked until they want to turn from that. The believer wants to turn from that. The unbeliever might feel guilt, but he loves his sin. And then just look at look at your friends. Do you enjoy hanging out with people who are haters of God or lovers of God? Because all, all people can can be thrown into one of two categories. They're either made alive or they're dead. They're either by nature children of wrath or they've been made alive. And so I understand Christ Christ ate with unbelievers, but do you find joy in in the 
do you find more joy with brothers of Christ or with unbelievers? And do you find more joy in the sin, in, in joking, in the humor, in the sort of loving of sin that you are still getting with friends that are unbelievers? Or do you find more joy with believers and and in talking about God and loving God? And then another thing I would look at is your your worldview. You know, you can have you can have all sorts of political views and still be a Christian. I understand. But there are things that biblically just there is absolutely no argument for. If you take abortion, for example, there's all sorts of nominal Christians today that will praise abortion, which makes absolute absolutely no sense. You advocate for killing babies. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. We know that in the Christian worldview that God formed you and that he knew you even when you were in the womb, even the moment you were conceived. And so it makes no sense that you would advocate that you know, oh, somebody can have just as much premarital sex as they want, which alone is sinful, and then they don't have to deal with the consequences if things go wrong. That that does not make logical sense. And it's absolutely so far from the heart of God. And also, it has all sorts of, it presents all sorts of issues with the idea that Christ was fully man from the moment of his conception, because if people try to say that, you know, you're not human until the moment you're born, one, that doesn't make logical sense, it doesn't make scientific sense, and also it destroys the hypostatic union or the idea that Christ was fully man and fully God. And so really look, look at your heart. Does your heart look like is it being made, is it being renewed daily to look more and more like God's heart? Or do you look just the same as every single other person? Do you look the same as all of your unbelieving friends? Do you look the same as everyone in your school or everyone in your community? If so, I would really, really question yourself. Look at yourself soberly. And if you if you find that, that you are a believer... Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. And if you find, if you look at yourself soberly and you say, I might be in trouble here, go to Christ. I, I would love, uh, if anyone wants to reach out, reach out on, uh, on the Shoulders of Giants Instagram. You can DM us. I'd be happy to call to have lunch with anyone who would want to. Uh, feel free. I would love that. Absolutely. So, and so I also just want to say that these things take time. I am being made new every single day. I am being changed every single day. My heart is being washed every day. I'm being renewed because I am not there yet. I will not be there yet until I am made perfect. Because until that day, I will be in my flesh a sinner, and I will hate that sin in my inner man. 
but I will, I will sin daily, and I will sin all the time, actually, because I will never love the Lord my God fully as much as I should. I will never in a single moment love my God as much as I should. And so I just want to, I want to get, I want you to give yourself some grace, but look at yourself soberly. And if you need to, I would say read First John and look at the believer described in First John and look and see, is, is that you? All right, so I want to, I want to pray us out on part three. So Lord, thank you for everything that you do for us. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach and evangelize. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to read your word and understand the, the, the God that you are and to look and, and rejoice in your redemptive plan. Please Please use this to not only give you glory, but use this as an instrument to bring people to Christ. Lord, I hope that, that I have glorified you in this. Lord, please forgive us for our sins. Help us to be thankful for all that you do for us. Uh, please let us look at ourselves soberly. Look at our, let us uh, look at ourselves in the way that you would look at us. And help us to see all that you do and are doing and have done. Lord, thank you for everything. Amen. Alright, so that is part three. We are done with a defense of Calvinism. We might go into tulip in more depth in later episodes but for now i hope you enjoyed this little sort of mini series i guess uh, thank you for, thank you for listening uh, we have seen that we've got some listeners out in europe and africa and south america so that's really cool uh, yeah that's awesome all right thank you